Hello, and welcome to D&D Book Club. My name is Megan, and today we are going to be discussing the first four episodes of the new Wheel of Time TV series on Amazon Prime. That's right, the first half of season one. I've never done a TV review, so I'm going to keep the format a little loose today. We'll see what works and what doesn't. If you've watched the show, but you don't know much about the lore of the series, you might want to listen to my episode called The Wheel of Time, Everything You Need to Know. It will explain the mythology, history, geography, cultures, and magic of the series without spoiling the narrative. This episode will contain spoilers for the first four episodes of the TV series, so you should probably watch before you listen to this. I will not, however, spoil any events from the novels beyond the time frame depicted in the TV series. That also means I won't use my knowledge of the novels to predict what will happen in the remaining episodes this season. And before I forget, I want to elaborate a little bit on something I said in the previous episode. I recommended fantasy fans read the Wheel of Time series, but I attached a few caveats. I forgot to include one. The series is 14 novels long and suffers major pacing issues in the middle. I've heard it said that Robert Jordan, the author, either wanted to or was encouraged to stretch the story as much as possible. The series was extraordinarily popular and more books meant more money. Doubtless, it wasn't as simple as that, and maybe the rumors are just rumors. Regardless, the story grinds to a halt in book 7 and doesn't really pick up again until book 11. The titles of those four books are The Crown of Swords, The Path of Daggers, Winter's Heart, and Crossroads of Twilight. I wouldn't say skip those books, but I would advise you to skim the chapters that don't focus on a main character. And, at the very least, mentally prepare yourself for a long slog before you begin The Crown of Swords. The series does eventually pick back up and kick back into high gear. One last thing. If you have any comments or questions, you can email me at dndbookclub at gmail.com. That's D-A-N-D-D Book Club. Or follow me on Instagram at dndbookclub or on Twitter at Miss Megan J. Now, let's begin. Episode 1, Leave Takings, begins with a brief monologue by Moraine Damadred, portrayed by Rosamund Pike. She tells us that the world was broken by someone called the Dragon, but that the Dragon has been reborn and is now coming of age. She doesn't know who the Dragon is or whether the Dragon is male or female, just that she needs to find them before the Dark does. Rosamund Pike is the star power in the series, and she was an excellent choice. I do find her wig a bit distracting, to be honest. I would prefer a blonde Marine, but that's a small complaint. I feel like, for the most part, she really gets the character, and the way she portrays Marine seems to leap off the page. Anyone can read lines, but she just feels like Marine. She gives an excellent performance, mixing intelligence, confidence, and power, but tinged with desperation. The line about the dragon being reborn as a boy or a girl is quite interesting, and the first departure from the books we get. In the novels, there's no question that the dragon will be male. In this world, it's uncertain. It's a compelling twist because it discards one of the main conceits of the first novel and opens the door for new possibilities. I do think that the dragon will be male. Mainly, this is because a female dragon would mean there's no danger of the dragon being driven insane by the taint on the male half of the true source, and that would be kind of a letdown. But I'm glad the show is trying new things and keeping old fans on their toes. Moraine travels with her warder, Lan Mandragoran. His performance is rock solid as well, and I've heard basically nothing but universal praise for his portrayal. Moraine witnesses a group of red-garbed Aes Sedai running down and capturing two fugitives, although only one man is real. The other is a figment of his imagination. 
The man chooses not to fight back, instead submitting to the Aes Sedai. Moraine declares he isn't the one and departs with Lan. As the two continue on their journey, we see that the strange formations all around them are skyscrapers gone to ruin, slowly being reclaimed by the Earth. This is our first hint that this civilization was once much more advanced than the early Renaissance time period in which the show seems to be set, or at least as advanced as our own. Does that mean this is Earth in the far future? We'll have to wait and see. In the sleepy town called the Two Rivers, we meet our four Taviran, Egwene Alvir, Matt Cawthon, Perrin Ibarra, and Randall Thor, all of whom are approximately the same age, about 20 years old. This is another clue that the show is diverting from the novels. In the books, Egwene is not Taviran, although she might as well be. Taviran, in case you didn't listen to the last episode, are special individuals chosen by destiny, for whatever reason, to shape the important events of the world, rather than be shaped by them. It's a special day in the Two Rivers, the day before the festival called Beltane. Egwene is inducted into the Women's Circle undergoing a special rite of passage which involves having her hair braided, then being pushed into a river. The woman leading the ceremony is Nynaeve, a slightly older young woman who is Egwene's friend and mentor. Matt, Perrin, and Rand drink together at the inn, and Matt loses all of his money gambling. The fun is interrupted when Lan and Moraine arrive. Everyone knows she's an Aes Sedai. The ring on her finger is a dead giveaway. But an Aes Sedai in this tiny backwoods town is quite an astonishing sight. Nynaeve looks like she wants to stab Moraine right then and there, but Moraine just looks over the four Taviran, then asks for a room for the night. Lan asks her if she knows which one is the dragon reborn, but she says no. Later that night, Matt finds his mother drunk while his father carouses. He escorts his mother home and puts her to bed, then tends to his two little sisters. Perrin, a blacksmith, goes to visit his wife working at the forge. There seems to be some tension between the two, but maybe I misunderstood what was happening in the scene. Rand helps Egwene, the innkeeper's daughter, clean up at the end of the night, and they end up sleeping together. Egwene tells Rand that Nynaeve has asked her to become her apprentice. Nynaeve is a wisdom, a kind of wise woman healer who can also predict the weather by listening to the wind. Rand reminds Egwene that wisdoms cannot marry or have children. And as everyone is going about their separate lives on the two rivers, unknown to all of them, a mysterious rider in black arrives in town. The next day, Rand sits alone up in the mountains. We get to enjoy some gorgeous mountain and forest scenery. The series is mainly filmed in the Czech Republic, which I think was a fantastic choice because it gives this land a different character from the New Zealand character of Middle-earth or the Northern Ireland character of Game of Thrones. The Wheel of Time doesn't feel like it's trying to copy the look of either of those franchises. It's clearly attempting to create its own distinct aesthetic. That aesthetic carries over to the people as well, the cast is very diverse, not only the main cast, but also the extras as well. It really sets apart the Wheel of Time from other franchises, and it's a welcome change from the all-white cast of the novels. Egwene joins Rand, and he discusses his life's ambition to remain in this small town, to be a farmer and marry Egwene and have kids. He isn't eager to get out and see the world. He's happy where he is, and he doesn't want anything to change. Unfortunately, things do change, as Egwene tells Rand that she has decided to become Nynaeve's apprentice, and therefore their future together will never come true. The nature of Rand and Egwene's relationship in the show is much more intense and physical than I expected. In the novels, the two are promised to one another, but it's not entirely clear what that means, except that everyone expects they will be married someday. They certainly don't seem to be madly in love. They definitely don't have premarital sex. I don't know if this is a new dynamic meant to flesh out their characters more, and believe me, their characters definitely need fleshing out from their novel counterparts, 
or if it's intended to add a new twist to the story. I'm not entirely sure I'm on board with this change. The episode's emphasis on their relationship and the introduction of an arbitrary rule that wisdoms can't marry, which is never elaborated upon, makes me think that this was just added to create an extra layer of romantic tension. Hopefully, it will lead to meaningful developments and not just pad out the runtime. Back in town, a peddler named Padden Fane arrives with his wagon. Matt tries to sell Fane a bracelet he stole from a woman the night before, but Fane drives a hard bargain. Moraine goes to visit Nynaeve, who is cleaning a sacred pool. Moraine tells Nynaeve that she must be special to be a wisdom at such a young age. She also knows that Nynaeve was an orphan from another village. She guesses that Nynaeve is about 25, but it seems as if no one knows her exact age since no one kept a record. Nynaeve tells Moraine a story about her mentor, who was refused admittance to the White Tower, the Aes Sedai headquarters, because she was a poor peasant. Nynaeve hated Aes Sedai before she even met one. I am a bit uncertain about this story. The White Tower doesn't turn away people because they're poor. I think there might be more to this story than Nynaeve knows. Matt, Perrin, and Rand get together and have a few drinks to celebrate Beltane. This was the first scene where I really noticed the costumes, particularly Rand's rough spun wool sweater. We're so used to seeing lords and ladies in their finery that it's a refreshing change of pace to see an ordinary person wearing ordinary country clothing, but it's more than that. All of the clothing the characters wear seems just a little different. From Rand's sweater, to Matt's strange bathrobe, to Egwene and Nynaeve's simple but pretty dresses, to Lan's billowy tunic, to Moraine's trousers, suspenders, and gorgeous blue coat ensemble, it doesn't feel like they just recreated medieval European clothing. But it doesn't feel fantastical either. The costumes seem instantly recognizable, but at the same time, not quite like anything you've seen before. But even as the boys are celebrating, something is off in the two rivers. Nynaeve and Egwene listen to the wind together, and it sounds strange. Lan finds slaughtered sheep with their carcasses arranged in a particular way. In Wheel of Time lore, the symbol we call a yin-yang is really two symbols. The half which points up is called the Flame of Tarvalin, the home city of the Aes Sedai. The half which points down is called the Dragon's Fang. The dead sheep appear to be arranged in the shape of the Dragon's Fang. Rand returns home with his father Tam, played by Michael McKelleny, whom you might recognize as Roose Bolton from Game of Thrones. At their farm, they light a candle and place it in a special paper lantern in memory of Rand's mother. Tam explains the significance of the Beltane Festival. All the people of the village light candles to guide their loved ones back to the world of the living, to once again be reborn as the wheel of time turns. In their beliefs, everyone who dies eventually returns to life, although no one knows how long it takes and no one remembers their past life. Tam explains that the purpose of life is to try to do a little better each time. It's a nice moment between father and son and provides a nice, succinct explanation for how ordinary people in this world understand their place in the cosmic scheme. Back in town, the people celebrate, but Moraine and Lan are growing more uneasy by the second. Lan knows that the dead sheep were the work of Trollocs, and that means a fade must be close as well. They need to get the Taviran away from here, but it's already too late. Moments later, all hell breaks loose as a small army of monstrous beastmen attack the village, indiscriminately slaughtering anyone and everyone. These creatures, the Trollocs, are hideous and terrifying. They're huge and muscular and hairy, with muzzles like wolves, sharp horns on their heads, and goat hooves. They use weapons, but they seem more like rabid animals than humans, and they aren't shy about pausing mid-battle to eat their victims. I have to say that the design on the Trollocs is excellent. They are truly horrifying, and the townsfolk react with pure shock at having their simple, peaceful lives invaded by creatures from a nightmare. Egwene and Nynaeve at first hide, but then realize they need to tend to the injured. 
Perrin and his wife Layla run to hide in their blacksmith shop. Matt desperately searches for his little sisters. And watching all this carnage and chaos from the sidelines, the peddler Padden Fane just smiles to himself. At the Althor farmhouse, a Trolloc attacks Rand and his father as well, bursting in through the door, axe in hand, ready to kill. Strangely, Tam Althor instantly recognizes the creature for what it is, the only one in the entire village who seems to do so. He pulls a chest out from under his bed and removes a katana-like sword with a heron symbol on the blade. He fights the Trolloc in single combat, and Rand is amazed to see his father fighting so skillfully. The Trolloc nearly overpowers Tam before Rand kills it with a spear through the throat. But Tam is injured, and Rand needs to get him to town so Nynaeve can tend to him. Moraine finally gets her act together and summons the One Power to defend the town. She uses weaves of the One Power to rip the Trollocs to pieces, to incinerate them with fireballs, to strike them down with bolts of lightning from the sky, and to crush them with heavy stones. While her attention is focused on her channeling, Lan protects her with his sword, cutting down any Trolloc who gets too close. This was probably the peak moment of the entire episode. The way in which the One Power is depicted suggests ribbons of energy coalescing around Moraine, drawn in from every direction at once, which she then channels into air or fire or lightning. Lan moves with perfect grace and precision, the way you expect a true blade master would. Inspired by Moraine, the townspeople begin to fight back. Matt manages to find his sisters and get them to safety. Nynaeve is grabbed by a Trolloc and dragged away with Egwene powerless to help her. Meanwhile, a Trolloc breaks into Perrin and Layla's smithy. The two work together, fighting side by side to take it down. The creature knocks Layla to the ground, and Perrin, in a rage, attacks it with his axe. Even with the creature dead, Perrin's fury continues, and he viciously hacks the corpse until he catches movement out of the corner of his eye. Overcome with battle rage, he swings his axe, plunging it into Layla's abdomen before he realizes it was her. She dies in Perrin's arms within moments. Of all the departures from the novel, this is the one that seems most controversial. In the novel, Perrin doesn't have a wife. Layla is a character created just for the show. Some viewers resent the fact that Perrin was given a wife just to have her killed off in the first episode. I don't mind this change at all. I think Perrin needed more development, more motivation, and this scene shows us that there is much more to Perrin than the simple blacksmith he seems to be. I do understand the argument others make against this change, but I'm curious to see where it will lead his character. During the battle, Moraine is injured, but the next morning she uses her healing skills to tend to the wounded, including Rand's father. She heals his injury, but rather than thank her, Rand accuses Moraine of being somehow responsible for the Trollocs coming, suggesting the timing isn't a coincidence. Moraine explains that the Trollocs have come because one of the four of them, Egwene, Matt, Perrin, or Rand, is the Dragon Reborn, and the Trollocs want to kill that person before they can come into their power. If they want to save their lives and the lives of their families, they will need to flee the Two Rivers immediately and come with her to the White Tower in Tarvalon. Just then, more Trollocs appear high in the hills above. With no more time to decide, the four Tavirin depart with Lan and Moraine. One criticism I have of this episode is the abrupt ending. It seems like they crammed what should have been a 10 or 15 minute scene into about two. They trust Moraine too quickly and agree to leave with her without any argument or debate. Even Rand's father, Tam, just nods his head with an encouraging smile. I also felt that we didn't get enough from Tam in this scene. Rand has just witnessed his shepherd father bust out a sword as finely crafted as Lan's and single-handedly defend a Trolloc. Not to mention how did Tam know it was a Trolloc, yet we don't get any elaboration upon it. We don't even know the significance of the heron symbol on the blade. 
We don't hear what Matt's parents or Egwene's parents think of all this. I'm not even sure Perrin's parents are there. I understand they wanted to get the story moving before the end of the episode, but I felt they could have taken a little more time with it. Overall, it was a solid beginning to the series. To be honest, I went in with low expectations. I wasn't impressed by the trailers, and I was concerned Amazon was just making this show because fantasy is popular and Wheel of Time is a big name. I was definitely relieved by the quality of the show and eager to see more. Fortunately, I didn't have to wait long, since Amazon was kind enough to release the first three episodes simultaneously. So let's jump right into episode two, Shadows Waiting. The episode begins at a military encampment. Pristine white tents are organized in an orderly fashion as men in pristine white uniforms move about camp. These are the children of the light, the fanatical crusaders who believe they are the only ones worthy to speak for the creator and that anyone who opposes them or even questions them is an agent of the Dark One. One of these men, whom we will later learn is named Eamon Valda, enjoys an unusual delicacy with an even more unusual entertainment, a yellow Aes Sedai tied to a stake with flames growing at her feet. Valda taunts her, then steals the great serpent ring from her severed hand, then enjoys a goblet of wine as she burns alive. Meanwhile, Moraine, Lan, and the Taviran flee from the Trollocs, eventually reaching Tarin Ferry. They bribe the ferryman to take them across the river, and not a moment too soon. The Trollocs reach the dock after the group is safely out of reach, accompanied by a Fade, also called a Mirdral, also called an Eyeless. This is the hooded figure in black we saw in the first episode. Trollocs can't swim and won't go in deep water. To make sure they can't follow, Moraine uses the One Power to sink the ferry. The stupid ferryman swims after it, but is sucked down into the whirlpool she has created. That evening, the group prepares to rest for the night, and the four Tavirin discuss the possibility that one of them is the Dragon Reborn. Rand distrusts Moraine. Matt thinks the whole situation is some kind of bizarre prank. Perrin, ever the stoic, keeps his mouth shut, although he secretly has a wound on his leg, which is only getting worse. I suspect that, after what happened to his wife, Perrin is still in shock and likely doesn't want to go back to their home or their smithy. While everyone is asleep, Moraine rouses Egwene to speak with her privately. Egwene accuses Moraine of killing the ferryman, but Moraine counters that the Aes Sedai cannot use the power to commit murder, even if they want to. She explains the three odes, that an Aes Sedai can speak no word which is not true, can make no weapon with which one person may kill another, and can never use the one power as a weapon unless to save her own life, the life of her warder, or the life of another Aes Sedai. These odes aren't a matter of honor. They are bound by the power itself, and they cannot break them even if they want to. Moraine then insists that Egwene has the ability to channel and that her ability to listen to the wind is a manifestation of this. With Moraine's help, Egwene is able to create a small light by focusing on a blue crystal. Afterwards, she goes to cuddle with Rand, but he asks to be left alone. That night, Rand dreams of choking on a dead bat, which he must pull out of his own throat. A dark man, not a fade, but a man made of darkness with flaming red eyes appears before him, and Rand wakes up. He wasn't the only one who had the dream, however. All four of the Tiberians shared it, although apparently it was slightly different for each. This dark figure with flaming eyes is already attempting to work its way into their minds. Rand again lashes out at Moraine, demanding to know what will happen to them after they reach the White Tower. Moraine essentially tells Rand that he can trust her and live, or take his complaints up with the Trollocs. Later, the group encounters the Children of the Light, also called White Cloaks, on the road. Moraine hides her eyes at Iring, then speaks to the captain of the White Cloaks, Jeffrem Bornholt. Eamon Valda, who is a questioner, something like an inquisitor, i.e. an interrogator, i.e. a torturer, is present as well, and he suspects Moraine and her companions. 
He thoroughly searches Maureen, more thoroughly than is appropriate, and discovers the wound she suffered during the Trolloc attack. Jeffrey Bornhold encourages her to seek an Aes Sedai to heal the wound. Our heroes continue east, the questioners head south, and the rest of the children go off to investigate the Trolloc attacks. I loved and hated this scene. I loved it because Maureen's answers demonstrate how the Aes Sedai bend the truth without really lying. She was asked where they're coming from. She answers, Tar and Fairy, which is technically true, but obviously isn't what Bornhold meant. She mentions having a sister in Whitebridge, which isn't true in the sense of a biological sister, but is true in the sense that all Aes Sedai are a sisterhood. She also mentions being the lady of a fallen house, although we get no more information than that. But I hate this scene too. I hate the smug, pious, self-righteous attitude of Eamon Valda. He's so convinced of his own moral superiority that he thinks he has the right to do whatever he pleases to whomever he pleases. I know they say that if you hate a villain, it means the writer or the actor have succeeded, but I felt deeply upset by the scenes with Eamon Valda and skimmed through them on my second watch. I did, however, love the white cloak costumes. It would have been so easy to just dress them up as stereotypical crusaders, but instead they dress them in robes more like priests than knights. It's another example of how the costumes in Wheel of Time tell a story about the characters without simply imitating real clothing. After the encounter, Egwene confronts Moraine about her wound, asking why she doesn't heal herself. Moraine explains that Aes Sedai can use the One Power to heal others, but not themselves. There are actually a few other restrictions on what the One Power cannot do. It cannot raise someone from the dead, it cannot create food and water, and although an Aes Sedai may use it to lift another person off the ground, they can't use it to lift themselves off the ground, which is why Aes Sedai don't fly everywhere. The group rides on, accompanied by music. I will pause to mention how much I enjoy the music in this series. It isn't the typical high fantasy music you're used to full of strings and drums. It sounds almost like Scandinavian or Baltic folk metal. Matt even sings a tune of his own, which the other Tavirin join in. It's a song about Manetherin, which Moraine explains was once a small but proud kingdom, which was destroyed thousands of years ago during the Trolloc Wars, when they were betrayed by their supposed allies after making a truly epic last stand against the Dark One's army. Manetherin stood where the Two Rivers now stands, and Two Rivers folk are descended from the survivors of that destruction. Matt, in particular, seems touched by Moraine's story. The group stops to make camp. Perrin's wound is becoming worse. While off on his own, he suddenly finds himself surrounded by wolves. At first, he's frightened, but the wolves don't attack. One approaches him slowly and begins licking his wound. Then all the wolves run off. During the night, the group is ambushed by Trollocs. Moraine is unconscious and cannot be roused, so Lan is forced to take charge. With no other choice, needing to keep Moraine safe, he guides the group to a city surrounded by massively thick walls which tower a hundred feet or more above them. The horses protest and need to be coaxed into entering the city. The Trollocs stop at the tree line, refusing to come any closer. The group enters through a huge crack in the wall and finds itself in the deserted city of Shadar Lagoth. The city is eerily quiet. There is no life whatsoever, not even birds and insects. Lan explains that this was once a great city. It surrounded itself with an impenetrable wall, only to be destroyed from within by its own evil. Ever since, the city has been an empty ruin. He warns them to touch nothing. During the night, Matt is awoken from his sleep. Something compels him to leave the building in which the group has sheltered for the night. He sees the shadow of a man moving and follows it. He doesn't find a man, but instead finds an ornate box beneath some rubbish. Opening the box, he discovers a finely crafted dagger with a ruby embedded in its golden hilt. 
Moments later, some kind of black ooze begins to move across the city's streets and along the walls of its buildings, moving towards the group's haven. The ooze, or the corruption, or whatever you want to call it, grabs one of the horses and turns it to dust. Egwene, Perrin, and Rand rush out to see what's happening, and, in the chaos, Matt and Rand are separated from Egwene and Perrin, and they are all separated from Lan and Moraine. The three pairs flee the city any way they can, pursued by the corruption, which is chasing them with some kind of malevolent will. Eventually, all three pairs make it out of the city, but they are now scattered. We finish with Lan and Moraine. As Lan tends to her, he finds a knife at his throat. He, and we, are surprised that the person wielding the knife is none other than Nynaeve. The last time we saw her, she was being dragged off by a Trolloc to what we assume was certain death. Yet here she is, very much alive. This episode was a lot of fun. I had planned to watch only one episode per day for three days, but after this episode, I couldn't help myself and watched the third right away. The Shadar Lagoth scene is probably the high point of book one, and I was very excited and anxious to see how it would be portrayed on screen. In the books, the evil of Shadar Lagoth is like a white mist, rather than a black oil moving across all the flat surfaces, but this depiction is every bit as effective. Evil fog and mist has become somewhat ubiquitous anyway, so I applaud the change. If I have a criticism of this scene, it's that we didn't get more of Shadar Lagoth. I almost think this could have been its own episode but I suppose that's the nature of television. At the beginning of the next episode, A Place of Safety, we get a flashback and learn how Nynaeve survived the Trolloc attack. After she was dragged away from Egwene, the Trolloc who took her finds another Trolloc in distress. With compassion and mercy, he ends his comrade's suffering by ripping out his guts and eating them. Nynaeve escapes and the Trolloc pursues. She finds her way to the sacred pool and hides underwater. She manages to stab the Trolloc from behind, and, as it bleeds out in the pool, the blood and the water form the symbols of the yin-yang, the dragon's fang, and the flame of Tarvalin. Flash forward to the present, and Nynaeve has Lan at knife point. He dares her to attack, and she obliges, but he easily disarms and subdues her, tying her to a tree. At this point, I was a little uncertain of Nynaeve, which is unfortunate, since she's one of my favorite characters. She's described as having a bad temper in a short fuse, but in the TV series, she is downright violent. I don't know if it's the writing or Zoe Robbins' performance. I feel like something is getting lost in translation. I understand that Nynaeve is extremely protective of her town and of her friends, but I also find it hard to believe that this woman with a hair-trigger temper who always seems to have a hand on her dagger is supposed to be the town healer. I guess I just imagined Nynaeve as more restrained and in control, but it's only episode three, too early to pass judgment yet. When Nynaeve wakes, Lan makes a deal with her. If she will use her skills as an herbalist to tend to Moraine's wounds, they will help Nynaeve find the others. Nynaeve reluctantly agrees. She harvests some bark from a tree and mixes it with other unknown ingredients to create a poultice. She pops the abscess and drains the pus, yuck, then packs the wound with her poultice. Lan is curious to know how Nynaeve managed to track him and Moraine all this way, but she refuses to answer. He leaves her alone to tend to Moraine while he goes off in search of help. Nynaeve is surprised that Lan would leave her alone with Moraine, but Lan knows her instincts as a healer will prevail. So maybe he has more faith in her than I do. Lan eventually returns and finds that Moraine is well enough to ride with him. The three travel southwest until finding another group of Aes Sedai, greens and reds. They meet Leandrin, the same Aes Sedai we saw in the very beginning of episode 1. She has the captured man in a cage, presumably to be taken to Tarvalin. 
Leandrin tells Moraine that this man claimed to be the Dragon Reborn. Meanwhile, Perrin and Egwene haven't been doing well since escaping Shadar Lagoth. They flee on foot across a windswept plain, being chased by wolves. They manage to take shelter in a hollow where Egwene uses the One Power to create a fire to keep them warm. Perrin tells Egwene that he believes Rand will go to the White Tower, since that's where he will expect to find Egwene. He also tells Egwene that Layla's death was his fault. Egwene tries to comfort him, telling him that it wasn't. Of course, no one except Perrin knows that it really was his fault. Everyone else just assumes it was the Trollocs that killed her. The truth of her death is his own dark secret. That night, Perrin dreams he's back home. He finds his wife's body being eaten by wolves before he's attacked by the dark figure with burning eyes they've all been dreaming of. Egwene and Perrin continue fleeing from the wolves, who follow them without ever attacking. Eventually, the two come across some cart tracks, and Egwene suggests maybe the wolves weren't chasing them, but were leading them here. The pair follows the cart tracks and comes across an encampment of the Tuathuan, the Tinkers, or Travelers, including a bright-eyed young man named Aram. The Tinkers give them food and shelter. Matt and Rand, after escaping Shadar Lagoth, search for Perrin and Egwene with no luck. Matt suggests they go home, since he believes that's where their friends will likely go. Rand disagrees. Egwene will go to the White Tower, and Perrin will stay with her. Rand needs to go to Tar Valen to find her. I know I've already said it, but I'll say it again. I love Rand and Matt's costumes. Rand wears this bright, warm, soft deerskin coat that tells you at a glance that he's a woodsman and a hunter. Matt's shabby bathrobe tells you he's poor and not the kind of person who is overly preoccupied with their appearance. I do hope we get to see him clean-shaven in a tailored doublet at some point, though. Matt and Rand reach a small mining town and decide to stop for the night. Upon entering, they see a strangely dressed man dead in a cage. At the inn, they meet the innkeeper, a young woman named Dana. They order soup and watch a performance by the glee man, Tom Marilyn. If you'll recall from the introductory episode, a glee man is a kind of bard who travels from town to town, singing, telling stories, and performing tricks. Tom performs a stirring ballad for the rapt audience. We've had two songs so far in the show, Tom's song and the song about Manetherin, and both were lovely. When he is done, Tom introduces himself to the Two Rivers boys and retrieves Matt's money pouch, which was stolen by a pickpocket. He doesn't give it back, but instead keeps it for himself, as a fee for his performance and for the lesson about being more careful with their money. In order to earn a place to sleep, Rand cuts wood and Matt waits tables, both befriending Dana the innkeeper in the process. Despite their new friendship, Matt is cagey about where they're from. Dana tells Matt that she wants nothing more than to get away from this dirty town. Dana allows Matt and Rand to have a room for the night and mistakenly assumes that the two are a couple. Rand, without embarrassment or offense, explains that they're just friends, not a couple, and that he could do better than Matt if he wanted to. The Wheel of Time book series hints at lesbian relationships, especially between Red Eye Sedai, quite frequently. Frequently enough that it's a little weird. But there's never any hint of gay male relationships. One of the pitfalls of the book series, in fact, is that the male-female binary dichotomy, which is most pronounced in the two halves of the true source, extends to every facet of the world. As such, there isn't much room for non-hetero, non-cisgender, non-binary characters. I very much appreciate that the show took the time to say that yes, there are same-sex couples in this world. And it's nothing so remarkable that even a country bumpkin like Rand would be put off by the suggestion. There's no harm in taking a moment to let LGBT viewers know that there is a place for them in this world of the show. 
Meanwhile, Matt goes to the cage where the dead man is still hanging. He saw a bauble on the man's belt earlier and wants to steal it. Just then, Tom Marilyn appears, wondering what Matt is doing there. They briefly flash daggers at one another, and Matt mentions having survived Trollocs. Tom, being the worldly man that he is, recognizes Matt's dress, speech, and attitude as being from the two rivers. He's also stunned that a young man from the sticks would know anything about Trollocs. The two sheathe their daggers, and Tom explains that the dead man is an Aiel, one of the warriors of the desert beyond the spine of the world. He can be recognized by the black veil he wears around his neck, which all Aiel don before going into battle, and by his red hair, which is exceedingly rare outside the desert. Tom explains that the man was murdered just for being an outsider, for being something the yokels didn't understand. This scene made me a little sad. I guess it was supposed to, but I don't like that this is our first introduction to the Aiel. I would rather get to see them in action before seeing one dead in a cage. We don't even get to know his story, why he's here on this side of the mountain, what was he doing in this town. I suppose we'll never know. Hopefully we'll get to see more Aiel soon, but if we don't, you can always watch Dune instead. They're basically the Fremen without the sandworms. Matt confesses to Tom that he's come to steal from the dead man. Tom, moved by pity for Matt's situation, turns his back and allows Matt to do so in privacy. Matt takes the bauble and apologizes to the dead man, explaining that he has sisters who need him. Then, together, the two bury the Aiel. Back at the inn, Dana attempts to seduce Ran, who rebuffs her. She doesn't seem hurt or embarrassed, just critical of her approach. She tried to make herself look like Egwene, but it seems to have backfired. Rand is confused that Dana even knows who Egwene is. Dana traps Rand in the room, using his own sword against him, as she waits for Matt. She tells Rand that the door is so solid that even three men couldn't get through. Despite this, Rand hurls himself at the door and manages to break it down. He flees into the night with Dana chasing him. He catches up with Matt and the two flee together. At last, Dana corners them, holding them at sword point. She explains that the Dark One has sent her dreams of all five of them. She knows one of them is the Dragon Reborn, and the Dark One has ordered his servants to capture them at all costs. She explains that the last person who captured a dragon for the Dark One, a man named Shamael, is legendary even thousands of years later. And now she will be too, when the Dark One comes into his power. Let's just pause for a moment here. Dana said she's been having dreams about five potential dragons. Until now, we've only heard about four. Who is this fifth person? Rand calls out Dana, wondering why she would willingly serve the Dark One. Dana explains that the Dark One isn't all that bad. It's the Wheel of Time, not the Dark One, that's truly behind all the suffering in the world. And the only way to end the cycle of rebirth, suffering, and death is to break the wheel. Apparently, she hasn't seen the cannibal beast men, eyeless dudes in black cloaks with a thousand teeth, or had dreams about choking on dead bats. Even if I had never personally met the Dark One, I'd feel comfortable judging him by the company he keeps. But perhaps Dana will get her chance to meet the Dark One in person after all. Tom Marilyn sneaks up behind and kills her with one of his daggers. She falls to the ground dead. Rand and Matt are horrified, but Tom explains that she was a dark friend, sworn body and soul to the Dark One. Rand retrieves his father's sword from Dana's corpse, and the two young men reluctantly follow Tom. Before I move on to the next episode, 
I want to let you all know that if you enjoy this podcast, you might enjoy my new podcast as well. It's called Death Zone, and it's a podcast about history's most incredible disasters, accidents, escapes, and rescues. If you're interested, please search Death Zone wherever you find your podcasts. Also, if you want to support this show, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash dndbookclub. That's D-A-N-D-D book club. For $5 a month, you'll get access to exclusive bonus episodes and content. You can also support me by purchasing my original Dungeons & Dragons content from the DMs Guild. And of course, you can subscribe, rate, review, etc. There will be links in the show notes. Now, back to where we left off. Episode 4, titled The Dragon Reborn, begins with a flashback. The King of Gaeldan is struggling desperately to defend his city against the forces of Loghain Ablar, a male channeler claiming to be the Dragon Reborn. Loghain is the same man we saw captured by the Red Aja at the beginning of Episode 1 and imprisoned at the end of Episode 3. We see Loghain in action, the first time we've seen a man channel. His weaves of the One Power appear white at first, like the Aes Sedai's weaves, but it's quickly apparent that his weaves are streaked with inky black. He manages to isolate the king as shadowy figures whisper in his ears, encouraging Loghain to kill the king. But, rather than kill him, he heals his wounds, explaining that he plans to bind the world this time, not break it. Back in the present, Egwene and Perrin continue traveling with the Tinkers, despite Perrin's distrust. Illa, the apparent leader of the group, tells Perrin and Egwene that they follow the way of the leaf. They do not use violence or weapons for any reason. They would rather die than commit violence. She asks Parent if he has ever been in battle and whether that experience made his life better or worse. Certainly remembering the death of his wife, Layla, Perrin is moved to silence. At night, the group plays music and dances. Aram tells Egwene that his people are searching for the lost song, a song which will supposedly bring peace and happiness to all the world, although Aram thinks it's a myth. He also tells Egwene that some of the travelers leave the group, that most come back, but not all. From what we've so far seen of Aram, it seems like he isn't as happy with his peaceful life of wandering as everyone else. Perrin continues his conversation with Illa from earlier. She tells him about her daughter, who was murdered, asserting her belief that pacifism will make the world a better place for her daughter once the Wheel of Time brings her back into the world. I wasn't thrilled with this storyline, to be honest. It's basically a lot of exposition about the Tinkers and their beliefs without much of a hint that it will bear fruit later. What's most interesting is how Perrin responds to those beliefs. We haven't gotten much of a sense of Perrin's personality in the past three episodes. We know he's torn about the death of his wife, but he keeps his pain bottled up inside. It seems like Ila is getting through to him, though. Perrin knows better than anyone that violence, even violence committed for the right reasons, can have horrible unintended consequences. Meanwhile, Matt and Rand travel with the glee man Tom Marilyn, fleeing the fade they know is hunting them. Rand doesn't trust him, but Matt seems to. Matt brings up what Dana said about five potential dragons and wonders who the fifth might be. The three attempt to sneak into a farmer's barn to spend the night, but the farmer catches them and agrees to let them stay in exchange for doing chores. Matt gets sick at night, vomiting some kind of black stuff. Tom senses something is off about Matt and tells Rand the story of his nephew, Owen. Owen was a young man who discovered he had the ability to channel. He became angry, secretive, and withdrawn from his family. Owen knew that the Dark One had tainted the male half of the true source, and that any man who channeled the tainted one power would eventually go insane. He kept his secret anyway, until the Red Aja discovered the truth. 
They gentled Owen, who lost the will to live, as anyone cut off from the one power inevitably does, and he committed suicide. That night, Rand dreams of Perrin hammering Layla's corpse, Matt wandering aimlessly, and Egwene being attacked by the red-eyed man. When he wakes up, Matt is gone. Rand and Tom seek him out and find him standing in the farmhouse, surrounded by the corpses of the farmer's family, more black stuff leaking out of his mouth. Matt is fixated on something up in the darkness of the loft above. Then Rand and Tom see it too, a fade lurking in the shadows. The creature attacks and Tom defends the two younger men, telling them to run. As Tom fights the fade alone, Matt and Rand escape on their horses. Elsewhere, Moraine's wound is healed by Karini, an Aes Sedai of the Green Aja. Once Moraine is recovered, she joins Leandrin, the red Aes Sedai who captured Loghain, and a green Aes Sedai named Alana. There are several other Aes Sedai present as well, although only these four get names. There is even one red sister wearing a headscarf like a hijab. I thought this was an interesting touch, suggesting that some modern traditions are still practiced in the distant future of the Wheel of Time, even without a religious context. Or, conversely, modern traditions were practiced in the distant past of the Wheel of Time, without a religious context. The Aes Sedai use the One Power to shield Loghain, blocking him from touching the true source, but it's difficult for women to shield men and vice versa, especially a channeler of Loghain's exceptional power. They take turns, shielding him in pairs. Leandrin wants to gentle him on the spot, but Karini insists he needs to be taken to the White Tower for trial before being gentled. I'm not sure why this is the case. He is a male channeler, and all male channelers are dangerous and have to be gentled. It's not as if he'd just be set free without being gentled, even if he was acquitted. And if he's innocent of being a male channeler, then gentling him won't harm him. Why not gentle him, then try him for what he's actually done, not what he is? Unfortunately, I think this was just a half-baked attempt to create tension between the Aes Sedai, showing the audience that not all Aes Sedai are the same. Lan speaks with Stepan, Karini's warder, about Moraine's relationship with the Amralin Seat, the leader of the Aes Sedai. Stepan and Karini speak alone, wondering what Moraine and Lan are truly up to and how far Leandrin's hatred of male channelers will take her. Alana talks to Moraine on Karini's behalf, trying to get information out of her, but fails. Alana confesses that she joined the Green Aja because she thought it sounded heroic to fight against the Dark One and fight in the last battle. She fears that Loghain is the Dragon Reborn, and, if he's gentled, he won't be able to fight at the last battle to save the world. Leandrin speaks to Nynaeve, who isn't intimidated by this intimidating woman, and Nynaeve asks her about Moraine. Leandrin tells her that Moraine, like the rest of the Blue Aja, act like spies and overvalue their own importance. Moments later, when Lan appears, Nynaeve refers to Leandrin as a snake. That night, Nynaeve joins the warders around their campfire and learns about the bond between warders and Aes Sedai, a bond they claim is deeper than the bond between married people and between parents and children. Not long after, Alana comes to retrieve two of her warders to spend the night with her. Lan joins Moraine in their tent. He tells her that Loghain is too old to be the Dragon Reborn. He asks her if Loghain is as strong as Egwene, but Moraine doesn't know. Lan points out that the Dark One doesn't appear to be chasing Loghain, nor sending him dreams like he did the Two Rivers kids. Moraine suggests that maybe the Dark One doesn't know who the Dragon Reborn is either. The next morning, Nynaeve interrupts Lan during his prayers. He tells her that he was praying for Malkir, his homeland, which has been lost but he hopes to one day reclaim. Nynaeve tells Lan about the day her parents died. 
There appears to be a bond of trust developing between them, but before they can speak further, the Aes Sedai encampment is suddenly attacked by Loghain's followers. The Aes Sedai and their warders defend the encampment as Lan and Nynaeve go to join Moraine in the cave where Loghain is imprisoned. He manages to break free from the shielding and knocks Karini and Leandrin unconscious. Moraine speaks to him, asking him to prove he's the Dragon Reborn. Loghain tells her that he can hear the voices of all the dragons that have ever existed speaking in his mind. Moraine tells him that these voices are the symptoms of his madness, and that his power is a candle flame compared to the raging sun of the Dragon Reborn. Karini and Leandrin come to, and the three women attempt to shield Loghain again. He attacks them, and Karini sacrifices her life to save her sisters. As she dies, her warder Stepan can feel it as if it happened to himself. Lan, Nynaeve, and Stepan reach the cave where Loghain is now shielded. In a rage, Stepan attacks Loghain. Stepan's axes penetrate the shield, and Loghain causes the axes to shatter, sending shrapnel through the cave. Moraine is wounded. Leandrin is wounded. Lan's throat is torn open by a flying piece of the broken axe, and he falls to the ground, bleeding out. Nynaeve rushes to his side, trying to help him, trying to stop the bleeding, even though she can tell it's hopeless. In rage and despair, Nynaeve cries out, and the one power bursts from her in a tremendous explosion, filling the cave with blinding light. Moraine, Leandrin, Lan, and Stepan are instantly healed. Loghain sees the light blazing all around Nynaeve and describes it like a raging sun before being thrown off his feet. The other Aes Sedai finally arrive, linking themselves to Leandrin, feeding their power into her, and she gentles Loghain on the spot. The episode ends with a close-up on Nynaeve as she struggles to understand what has just happened. I absolutely love this final scene. It might be my favorite scene in the series so far. As I mentioned, Nynaeve is one of my favorite characters, and I wasn't happy with how she's been portrayed so far. But we finally get to see more of the real Nynaeve, standing up to Leandrin, hanging out drinking with the warders, sharing a nice moment with Lan. It's the first time we've gotten to see her acting like a real person instead of a walking time bomb. But when she does explode, she explodes in spectacular fashion, in the most impressive and dramatic display of the one power we've seen so far. Overall, I wasn't a big fan of this episode, except for the final scene and the opening scene. I loved watching Loghain and all his power at the beginning. Alvaro Morte, who plays Loghain, did a wonderful job portraying a man whose motives aren't exactly clear. He's a violent revolutionary, but he is willing to show mercy. He uses the one power against the Aes Sedai, but apparently only in self-defense or to escape his situation. Considering what happens to men who can channel, who can blame him? He doesn't kill without cause, and he may be mad, but maybe not. But between the opening scene and the final scene, we mostly get scenes of people talking. Egwene talking to Aram, Perrin talking to Illa, Tom talking to Ran, Ran talking to Matt, the Aes Sedai and their warders all talking to one another. It seems to me like that middle episode in a season where you put all the exposition, since the people watching are probably invested by that point. I know I am. I did enjoy the brief confrontation between Tom and the Fade. I only wish we could have seen more. We still don't know Tom's fate, and we still don't know whether he is a dark friend in disguise, as Rand suspects. There's a few other questions lingering in the air as well. What's the deal with Pat and Fane, the peddler who just watched all the carnage at the two rivers unfold? And what's the deal with Rand's father and his sword? But let's move on to the big question. Who is the Dragon Reborn? Let's look at the clues. First, Loghain. He's probably not the one. 
As Lan said, he's too old, and the Dark One doesn't seem suspicious of him despite the fact that he's been much higher profile than the others, and his power seems much less than the Dragon Reborns should be, at least to Moraine. Next, Nynaeve. She's obviously extremely powerful, far more powerful than even the most powerful Aes Sedai we've seen so far. But Moraine initially discounted her for the same reason Lan discounted Loghain. She's too old. But Nynaeve's age isn't entirely clear in the first episode. She might be younger than she seems. Or maybe the Dragon Reborn is older than Moraine thinks. And we still never found out how Nynaeve managed to track Lan, or why the Trolloc who captured her in episode 1 didn't just kill her on the spot. Perhaps it had orders not to. Next is Matt. Twice in this episode, we see Matt leaking some kind of black stuff that looks similar to the streaks of darkness in the One Power channeled by Loghain. It also kind of looks like the black corruption from Shadar Lagoth. His behavior is certainly strange enough to make Tom suspicious, and Tom is a very worldly man with direct experience of a male channeler. I don't believe that Matt killed the farmer and his family. I think that was most certainly the Fade, but we don't know yet. That leaves Egwene, Rand, and Perrin. We know Egwene can channel, and Moiraine believes she has the potential to be a very powerful channeler, at least as powerful as Loghain. We haven't seen Rand show any signs of being the Dragon Reborn, except for knocking down the supposedly unknockdownable door at the inn, and all we've seen of special abilities from Perrin is a rapport with wolves. Now, no spoilers, but I know which one of these characters is the Dragon Reborn in the novels, and even I am not certain who it is in the TV show. The show has deviated from the books often enough and in important ways, not just minor details. They might give the mantle of Dragon Reborn to a different character, it would certainly be an amazing twist if they can pull it off. It might anger other Wheel of Time fans, but not me. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills, and if the wheel wills, the dragon will be someone new, it will be so. Since we're now halfway through the first season, I'll give you a few brief thoughts on the series as a whole. This series is much better than I thought it would be, and I'm enjoying it much more than I thought I would, which are not mutually inclusive. The acting, the writing, the costumes, the music, the effects, and, until this episode, the pacing, have all been spot on. I do have a general complaint, however, and it's actually a complaint I had about Game of Thrones as well. In the Wheel of Time TV show, a lot of scenes which happen indoors or in specific towns or other locations instead happen at a random spot out in the woods. By this point, the characters should have already moved through at least one city, Barillon, but if it happened, it happened off-screen. I understand that original sets and costumes for extras and digital map paintings are expensive, but I wish they would make more of an effort to ground the show in the geography of the world, so we could at least tell where characters are in relation to one another and where they're going. All they ever talk about is going east, to Tarvalon, but we don't know if that's 50 miles away or a thousand, and surely there's more between here and there than generic forest. I think one of the ways in which the show really delivers is its depiction of the One Power. In the books, the rules of the One Power are laid out in detail, but it's left to the imagination what it should look like. I love how the power seems to flow into the channeler, always from somewhere off screen, like the true source is everywhere and nowhere. And I was actually shocked when I saw Loghain wielding the One Power streaked with black, like oil on water. It shows us the taint on Sidene before it's even explained. I wonder whether we'll see what happens if a transgender or non-binary character uses the One Power. It never happens in the book, so we don't know. Does a trans woman channel the female half of the true source or the male, and vice versa for trans men? What about non-binary, gender-fluid, or agender individuals? As a trans woman myself, it's one of those things I often wonder about when considering the Wheel of Time. 
I only pray they handle it respectfully, whatever they decide to do, if they do anything at all. Going forward, I want to see a bit more personality from Matt and especially Perrin. I feel like we were getting somewhere with Matt, but now that he's starting to go all sour, as Tom Marilyn put it, I fear we're going to miss our chance. In the books, he's bursting with personality, and I very much want to see some of that shine through. I liked the notion that Matt is so concerned about his sisters that his main focus is getting home to be with them. That's a great motivation for a character, and especially for Matt. Perrin's development in this fourth episode was a step in the right direction, but we're going to need more. And we're going to need those wolves explained. And whatever happened to the wound on his leg? Did the wolf lick it all better? I am still looking for clues whether this is supposed to be in the past or the future. During one particular scene in which Egwene and Aram look at the night sky, it appears they can see the Milky Way, but I'm not certain, and I didn't see any familiar constellations. But even if we assume this is Earth, it could be literally millions of years in the future or past, and maybe the sky looked different then, or will look different. I would prefer they keep the answer vague. It's the future, and it's the past. The wheel turns, and each turning is the same as the one before it, yet new. I'm curious to see whether the first season will conclude where book one concludes. If they keep up this pace, I'm not sure they'll make it, but it's not impossible either. I wonder what that will mean for seasons going forward. We already know Amazon has picked it up for a second. I highly doubt they are going to turn 14 novels into 14 seasons, and some of the novels probably couldn't support an entire season. I wouldn't be surprised if books two and three are condensed into a single season two, but it's obviously too early to tell. I'm just speculating. Personally, I'd rather they condense even the early novels than rush at the end. We've all seen too many shows who put everything up front and deny us a satisfying conclusion. I'm looking at you, Lost. I guess I'll wrap everything up here and now. It's been a long episode, but if you're still here, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash dndbookclub or by purchasing my original content on the DMs Guild. Just check out the links in the show notes. As always, if you have any questions or comments or corrections, please email me at dndbookclub at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at dndbookclub or Twitter at Miss Megan J. I hope to see you again soon. And until next time, remember, if you suspect someone you know might be a male channeler, please report them to your local Aes Sedai. <laughs>